0: All right. Well, if you've got a Bible, if you want to open to the, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, and I'll do a couple quick announcements here. Uh, first of all, when you came in the door, most of you probably got one of our bulletins, our guide pages. If you didn't get one, feel free to grab one on your way out. They're on that table by the offering box there. And this has a lot more announcements than we give you uh, every week in it. Um, there's a lot more going on than we can say in just a couple of announcements every week. And so these are there. Um, a couple of things that are coming up. One, coming up on May 20th, we've got a membership class as a church. And um, this is a chance where you can come to join. Grace Road. But really, more than anything, it's a chance to really hear uh, what it is that makes us tick. Uh, we go through our history a little bit, uh, our doctrines a little bit, what we believe, what our philosophies are. And we would encourage you, if you're going to be among Grace Road, even if you don't decide to join that night, there won't be you know, like a high-pressure close or anything like that. Um, but we'd encourage you to come just to learn more about your church, learn more about our history, learn more about where we think uh, the Lord has us going. And so, so come on out. Uh, also, on May 19th, We'll be doing child dedications. And uh, we do this a few times a year. And the reason we do this is really to dedicate parents, uh, to say that these parents are pledging to raise their kids to know Jesus and um, to to raise their kids to grow up in a Christian home. And we want to publicly pray for those parents, publicly announce that, and make those commitments together. And so a couple times a year we'll do that. And May 19th is the next time that we will be doing that. Uh, Also, at the end of service today, we'll be doing a baptism. And um, for us, we believe baptism is something that we do to announce the transformation that Jesus has brought into our lives, uh, that he's washed our sins away, he's cleansed us, he's made us new. And uh, we do have someone scheduled to be baptized, but if you have put your faith in Jesus and you have have not been baptized since then, you can be baptized today. We'd be happy to do that for you. And so if you're interested in being baptized, talk to uh, Andy, who is... Around here somewhere. Uh, by the way, Andy Trahan is just the young unsung hero around here. Um, things for setup and tear down in a place like the German House, where we have to set up everything, we don't own this place, we just meet here on Sunday morning. Uh, the work that these guys do behind the scenes is just absolutely massive. Um, this morning they went to fill our horse trough slash baptistry, and um, none of the adapters were there for hoses. There's already been a trip to Home Depot. Uh, these guys hold it together masterfully. They, they serve us all, and we don't see the work that they do, um, but, but they do really good stuff to allow Grace Road to happen, and so we're thankful for all of you who are on setup and tear down, and for Andy especially, who kind of just bears the stress of a Sunday morning. We, we really appreciate that. Um, let's pray and jump in here. Uh, Father, we just thank you for your word. I just pray that you would be teaching us. Uh, Lord, show us the story that we're in. Show us where we're going. Uh, Show us the relationship with you that we're supposed to have so that our lives will be different. Uh, Lord, we're not here to be entertained. Uh, We're not here just to hear something. We're here to hear something that'll change us as we hear from you. And so I pray as we look at your word that we would be hearing from you today and that you'd be glorified here. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Um, one announcement I forgot to make. Uh, as we go into summer mode, I know a lot of people travel and we encourage you to do that, you know, especially if you have chances to hang out with people at work who are far from Jesus, need to know Jesus. I don't know what that is. Um, but as you hang out with, uh, with people who are out there, we encourage you to, um, when they invite you to go out to picnics and things like that, to go do the things that they're doing. Be around people who are far from God, and we'd love to pray for you, and we know we'll see you again the following week. So if you know a guy from work invites you to go out on the boat on a Sunday morning, and that's a chance where you'll be able to spend a few hours with him and maybe speak the words of Jesus into his life, uh, go for it. Um, that sounds like good ministry. It sounds like good mission, and we're glad that you're doing that. Uh, But also, as people travel and as you do things like that, um, we know that it's easy to miss a lot of church during the summer. And one of the things that could help you with that, especially if you you go away a lot of weekends and you're driving back Sunday mornings, um, we have a third service at Grace Road East that happens on Sunday nights. And so every Sunday night at 6, Grace Road Church happens at our East location. Um, Our East location, we rent a church called Mosaic out on 359 West Bloomfield in Pittsburgh. It happens at 6 p.m. Most of the time, it's the same worship set. Every week it's the same sermon. I go out there and preach the same thing, so it's not like it's a totally different experience altogether. Um, but we would encourage you, especially if it seems like you're going to miss a lot of Sunday mornings, feel free to join us out there at Grace Road East. Um, once summer hits, after we get past the, the season where people are done with school, we go to a mode where we only have our kids' classes in childcare at 9 a.m., and at Grace Road East at 6 p.m. That's not starting next week. That's starting, I think, in June. Um, but we'd encourage you to be part of Grace Road East during the summer, too. If that works better for you, you're more than welcome to head over there for the summer. Um, we could use help over there uh, with child care set up and tear down. But you're also welcome to join us out there for worship so that you can kind of keep up with your church family and with the, the stuff that we're teaching through here. Um, but in Mark chapter 12, um, Jesus here is just days or hours away from his crucifixion. And, um, and, and he's being tested. People are coming to him and asking him all kinds of questions. And as they ask these questions, Jesus tells the story, really, of where we're going. Um, when you start out on a trip, when you, you head out on vacation or you're going somewhere, where you're going makes all the difference in how that trip goes. And for example, if you—it's uh, the middle of winter in Rochester and you hop on a plane and you're flying to Hawaii for a vacation— that's going to be a certain kind of trip. You're going to feel, as you get farther and farther away from the snow, you're going to feel all of your cares wash away. You're going to feel the stress lift. You're going to get happier. You're going to be smiling. You're going to be wearing your Hawaiian shirt and your flip-flops. And you're going to be daydreaming about what you're going to be doing in just a few hours as you're sitting on a beautiful beach and you're away from it all. And so that whole trip on the plane, that's all affected by the place that you're going. Now, on the flip side, if you're returning... Um, you know, it's January and you're coming back from Hawaii uh, after vacation, you're coming back to Rochester, then that trip's going to be affected by the fact that you're returning now. You're probably going to feel the stress of life come back on you. You're going to be starting to think about work and how much you're going to have to dig out and all the problems that you're probably going to have because you took so much time away. Um, all, that, that trip changes. Even though you're spending the same amount of time on the plane, even though the flight is basically the same kind of flight, What you're thinking about and where you think you're going makes all the difference for for what kind of flight and what kind of trip that is. And and so here in Mark chapter 12, as Jesus is being pressed and tried and questioned, they keep trying to put Jesus into traps. They keep trying to get him to stumble. They keep trying to trip him up. But every time when they do that, Jesus gives them answers for their questions that not only gets him out of a trap, but his answers bless and change the entire world. You know, in the Old Testament, when a lamb was about to be offered as a sacrifice, it had to be examined to make sure that it didn't have spot or blemish, because the sacrifice that you offered to God had to be the best. And here in Mark chapter 12, Jesus, as the Lamb of God, is being examined. They're looking for spots and blemishes. They're looking for faults and failures. And group after group comes to Jesus to question him, and group after group can find no problems at all. In fact, we'll see a test today that they put Jesus in. We'll see another one next week. But then after that, people stop trying to test him because they just can't find any fault in him at all. And, and so he has to go to a formal trial instead of just being tried by his peers all around him. So in Mark chapter 12, verse 18, it says, And the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, So, so last week, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they questioned Jesus about taxes. They questioned him about his politics, they tried to trap him there, but he didn't fall into their trap, and he spoke words about about God and Caesar that absolutely changed the world. And now these Sadducees come up to question Jesus. And these guys were considered the elite scholars, they were very conservative, Uh, for them the entire Bible was just the first five books of our Bible today. They believed in the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, but they dismissed all the rest, even of the Old Testament. They didn't um, accept the Psalms as from God. They didn't accept the words of the prophets as from God. They had five books, and those were the books of Moses, and those are the ones that they accepted. Um, They were very educated. These were the guys who had gone to seminary. They were the, the religious elite, but they got faith educated almost completely out of them. And this is actually a danger in a lot of seminaries today, where people go to seminary and they graduate knowing a whole lot, but they don't believe much of what they know. And so that's where these guys were. They, they knew a lot about those first five books of the Bible, but their belief in God's work in the supernatural was, was non-existent. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in God doing anything supernatural today. And they definitely didn't believe that there was an afterlife or a resurrection coming. Um, they, they thought that all the supernatural stuff was stuff that we had added, and that the way to live for God is to follow his commands, do what he says, and you'll reap what you sow in this lifetime. So, so obey the law, you've got one life to live, just, just get everything done in this life, and then when you die, you're completely gone. So to them, the idea of a future resurrection seems silly. Now, there are other guys, like even the Pharisees, they believe that once we die, we we wait, and then eventually we resurrect. Eventually, those who have been faithful to God resurrect, and they have everlasting life. But the Sadducees thought that that idea was absolutely silly. And so they come up to Jesus to ask him a question that'll trap him. If Jesus gives the answer that they want to hear, and he says that there is no resurrection, then they'll like him, and they'll accept him, but the people, for the most part, will reject Jesus because the people didn't like the teaching of the Sadducees. If Jesus says that there is a resurrection, then the religious scholars, the elite, will look at Jesus and say that Jesus is silly, he, he's stupid, he doesn't really understand how doctrine works. So that's the trap that they put him in. They, they try to question him about this future resurrection to make him look silly. So verse 19, it says, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So they go back to this passage that we won't turn to now in Deuteronomy 25, where God had given this law called leveret marriage. And, and what this law was, was that if a man was married and he died before his wife had had any kids, then his brother's duty was to marry his wife and raise up children in his name so that that guy would basically have offspring. Now we hear that and we say, Um, um, Do we have to obey that today? No, no, we don't. Um, That that was a law for Old Testament Israel. It's not something we have to follow today. But it wasn't just crazy at the time. Um, It was basically Social Security. That if you have this woman who's married and her husband dies and she never has any kids, she can't just go out and get a job. She couldn't just go out and have a good career. And so she would end up uh, getting older and having nobody to care for her. It was expected that your family cared for you. And in this kind of situation, if she didn't have a family, she didn't have any offspring, then she would get older and older, and she would have nobody around who would meet her physical needs. And so you could have situations where widows would starve, widows would die. And so God's law to make the best of a bad situation was somebody needs to marry her so that she can raise up children, um, so that she can have some kind of offspring, and so the family line can continue. So that, that was the law. Um, so that was the backdrop. They, they knew that that law was there, but here's the scenario they proposed to Jesus. Verse 20, it says, There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her, and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. So here's their scenario seven brothers. First one marries her and he dies, no kids. Second one marries her and he dies, no kids. Third one marries her and he dies, no kids. Now at this point, hopefully she's only agreeing to marry these guys if they take out a good life insurance policy um, because this could be lucrative for her. Um, But but it just keeps happening. And so you have all of these guys who marry the same lady and all of them die. They never have any kids. Seven different brothers, they all marry her. And then at the end of the whole story, she dies and there are still no kids. So they're just following the law, they're just doing what they're supposed to do, and now it it doesn't work. But then there's this resurrection. So verse 23, they say, in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. So these guys, remember, they don't believe in an afterlife, they don't believe in any future resurrection, and they say, is this really what this afterlife would be like? I mean, is this God's ideal family where you have seven brother husbands all married to one lady? Heaven sounds like a creepy place, Jesus. Like, I don't, I don't want to go there. Um, it doesn't sound like heaven. That sounds like, um, just insert your geographical location that, that you'll get offended if I say you're from there. Um, but uh, it's So they're saying this resurrection idea is silly because marriage, obviously, we all know marriage is a big deal in God's plan. Uh, God loves marriage. He, he wants there to be husbands and wives. The family is a huge deal to us. It was a huge deal to the Jews. And they say, so God, who cares so much about family, has also set up this idea where there's a future resurrection. Everybody comes back to life, and here they are trying to figure out who's married to who. And you got these family pictures in eternity where it's seven guys all with half a smile and the one wife. Um, that sounds horrible. So Jesus, come on, this resurrection idea, it's just kind of silly. It's an idea we made up to make people feel a little bit better at funerals, to kind of take the edge off of death, to give us some idea of where we're going. But in reality, there is no resurrection. So verse 24, Jesus said to them, is this not the reason that you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So Jesus very boldly, without fearing people, he looks at them and he says, you're wrong. He says, you're missing it altogether. And he says this, remember, to the people who weren't supposed to be wrong because they were the elite, they were the scholars. And he says the reason that they're wrong, the reason they don't understand where things are going is twofold. Number one, they don't know the Bible. And number two, they don't know the power of God. And by the way, for us, when we get our theology wrong, when we have our view of God and the world and the story that we're in wrong, usually it's for one of those two reasons, too. Either one, we don't know or believe or trust the Bible. Number two, We don't know God, and we don't believe and trust that he's alive, and he's active, and he's still working in our world. So Jesus keeps talking, verse 25, and he says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So Jesus says, yes, there's a resurrection that's coming. You're dead wrong because you don't know the power of God. You're dead wrong because you don't accept all of the Bible. But when that resurrection comes, we resurrect in a form that's very different than the form that we're in today. There's a radical transformation that's coming, and that transformation is going to be so radical that in some ways we won't even recognize the similarities. Now, this is the teaching all throughout the New Testament, that that when Christians die and are buried, they're awaiting a resurrection. Their spirits go to be in the presence of God, but then they wait for that body that was buried to rise again and be with God in a physical body on a physical earth for all eternity. The Bible teaches that that's the eternal state that we're headed toward as Christians. In fact, I can just read you this in 1 Corinthians 15, um, starting in verse 35, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, but someone will ask... How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, the man of the dust. The second man is from heaven. And and as was the man of the dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So when Paul's talking about our future and the resurrection that's coming for Christians, he compares it to a seed that's being planted in the ground. If you take an apple seed and you bite into it, you'll taste a little bit of apple you'll know what kind of seed that is, you'll know what that's going to grow into, or at least what it would have grown into if you hadn't bitten it, Um, but you'll taste that seed, and then when it gets planted in the ground, it grows into something that's orders of magnitude bigger and more glorious than that seed. And so when Paul's describing our future, he says we're like that seed. We dry up, we wither, we die, and our bodies are planted in the ground. But there's coming a day for Christians when we will be raised from the dead. And when we raise from the dead, it'll be the difference between a seed and a tree. It's going to be a huge deal. It's not just going to be a minor upgrade, but it, just as a tree is different from the seed, the new bodies that we raise with will be that different from the bodies that we have now. Um, so, so we're not talking just a small change. You know, it's not like you're going from the iPhone 3 to the iPhone 4. Um, you're going from Android, Android to iPhone, like a huge difference, um, where it's, it's almost a, not a recognizable difference. Um, it's, it's almost not even the same kind of thing. It's, that's where we're headed. And so the promise for all of us as Christians is that, that we're going there, we've got this glorious physical resurrection. Now the question comes up pretty often, okay, so what about people who have already died? Um, you know, my, my grandma was a, a Christian, she loved Jesus, and then she died. Uh, where is she now? Well, 2 Corinthians 5, 8 says, yes, we're of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So when a Christian dies today, their spirit does go to be with the Lord and their spirit is apart from their body. Their spirit is with the Lord. But that's a temporary situation until those bodies are resurrected and the spirit and body are reunited. So so yes, those who we love, who've gone before us, who love Jesus, who, are with, who have died, are with them in heaven. They're very conscious. They're very happy. They are in bliss. But there's coming a day when they're going to be reunited with their bodies, when their bodies are resurrected into a new form. And that's actually the story of, of the Bible, is that we die, but because of Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection on the cross, to take away our sin, to take away our guilt, and because Jesus rose from the dead, we're promised that we'll have that future resurrection from the dead. In fact, the promise of the Bible is that the entire creation, everything in the world, everything is broken, everything's falling apart now, it's all groaning, it's all withering, it's all drying up, but there's coming a day when Jesus is even going to resurrect the whole physical world. Revelation 21, verse 1, it says this. He's talking about the future. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. So that's what we're headed toward. Not all of us living apart from this physical creation in heaven, but heaven coming down to be with us. Verse 4, it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It's done. It's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So that's the eternal state of things. Those who have had sins forgiven are resurrected, and they're in a creation that's been resurrected. Those who have not pay for their sins eternally. So that's where things are going. And knowing that that's where things are going should shape the way that we live now. Now, before we unpack some of this, um, we, we just read a couple passages from the New Testament, and those passages weren't written at the time that the Sadducees were coming up to talk to Jesus, um, when they're coming up to question Jesus, they, they didn't have the book of Revelation. They didn't have 1 Corinthians. So was there anything in their Bible that would give any kind of hint at all that there was a resurrection coming? Well, in Mark 12, 26, Jesus says this. He says, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living, you are quite wrong. So there's this passage in Exodus, a book of the Bible that they accepted, where God said that he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And to be the God of someone means that those people are alive. Because if you're somebody's God, then you care for them, you protect them, you guide them, you lead their lives, you, you, you direct their steps. And that means nothing if Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob are completely dead. God's the God of the living. And for him to say that I am presently the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob means that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even though their bodies have long since been dead, they're still alive. So Jesus says the reason you're missing it is because you don't know the scriptures. And they would say, but Jesus, this sounds silly. God takes our spirits and puts it in this other place where they're just dwelling with God. And Jesus would say the reason you get it wrong is because you don't know the power of God. Yeah, it sounds crazy, but God can do that. All right, so this has all kind of been theory, but how does it affect us now? Let me give you four ways that it affects our lives now, and then a couple ways that it affects our marriages. First of all, if this is true, and it is, that we as Christians are headed toward this resurrection, and we're going to have all eternity on a resurrected earth, then this means that this life is not all we have, and that should affect our priorities while we're here. A lot of times the way that we live, especially when we're young, is we say, you know, you only live once, so you've got to enjoy everything that this world has to offer while you still have a chance. You've got to go and see the world. You've got to suck all the pleasure you can get out of this life. You've got to make sure that you have all the right relationships, all the right things, that you get all the right toys, because when you die, your opportunity to get those things is completely gone. Well, that's not a Christian worldview at all. Now, I'm not against at all receiving some of the good things that God's given us and taking a good vacation, buying a nice car, having a nice house. Those things are fine, and we can receive them with thanksgiving, but those should not be the driving priorities for Christians, because we know that as Christians, this life is not at all all that we have. This life's just a small second compared to all that we have that we will be resurrected, and even if there are parts of the world we never get to see now, we can always check them out like five million years from now. Um, and they'll be better then. You know, they'll be resurrected. They'll be in better shape. So we don't have to get all of the pleasure that we can possibly get out of this life now. That shapes our priorities. We're people who live for God, and we live for his priorities. We don't live just for experience and pleasure and thrills and excitement. We can receive some of those things, but they shouldn't drive us. And you know, sometimes we can look at other people, too, and we can see, well, they're having those experiences. You know, they've got the money. They've got the neighborhood. They've got the relationships, I'm not getting any of those things. And we can start to covet. We can start to get anxious. We can start to feel like we're missing out. But if this resurrection is coming, then it means that this life is not at all, all the time that we have. This is just the first second, and we've got plenty more coming after that. Uh, Secondly, it means that the things that we lose in this life are not final. When we look around and we see people... um, going and having these great experiences. It seems like life is passing us by. You feel like you're falling behind all of your other friends because they're moving on with careers, they're moving on with marriages, and you're just kind of waiting for those things to come. And if I don't have those things, I'll never be happy. I'll never be fulfilled. I've got these losses and I'm missing all these opportunities. Losses in this life aren't final if there's a resurrection coming. Number three, it means that the quality of this life is less important for us than the quality of the next. I know some Christians will use this as an excuse to not minister to the physical needs of people, and we shouldn't do that. I mean, Jesus ministered to the physical needs of people. He fed hungry people. He healed sick people. And those are people that all ended up dying. They all ended up getting hungry again. He met some of those temporary needs that people had, but at the same time, he was meeting spiritual needs in a much greater way. And as Christians, we want to meet the physical needs that people have, but also we want to make sure that we're meeting the spiritual needs. We want people to know God. And if the way to have that resurrection is to trust in Jesus so that their sins can be forgiven, then spreading the good news of that gospel has to be a priority for us. And then when we look at our lives, our own quality of life shouldn't be as much of a concern as the quality of the next life. When you go camping, you don't build a deck on your tent. Maybe some of you do. I don't. You don't, you don't decorate your tent. You, you don't make sure that everything in your tent is exactly right because you know it's a temporary situation. And sometimes we live like this life is all we have, and so everything around us has to be perfect. We have to have every comfort. And according to the Bible, we don't have to have those things because the comforts of the next life are more important than the comforts in this life. Fourth thing is it means that the greatest joys that we have here in this life are going to look dull in comparison to the next life. When I was in high school, my, my father was a used car dealer. He had a couple of, um, couple of car lots in Hamburg, New York, um, right outside Buffalo. And so it was a good deal for me as a high school student because I always had a car. And the way it worked is I just borrowed the cars that he let me use. And so he determined what car it was going to be, but I got to use it and use it for free. Um, so, so it was a good deal. And I remember it was actually before I even got my driver's license. He brought this car home that was going to be the first one that I was going to drive, and it was an AMC Eagle. Um, And if you've never seen one of those, like on an evolutionary chart, it's actually an ancestor of the Pontiac Aztec that I drive right now. Um, Just a (laughs) goofy-looking car, kind of crossed between a station wagon and crossover and moon buggy, like just this weird-looking vehicle, but it was a car. And I was 16, and I was going to have a car. And so I remember, even before I had my license, I detailed that car, I mean, vacuumed every corner, got all the armor all, got everything shiny. Um, It was back when tires used to have, like, the white walls on them. I cleaned the white walls and got everything shiny on the outside, waxed the thing by hand. And then when I got my driver's license, I drove this car constantly. Um, gas was like a buck ten a gallon, and so it wasn't a big deal. Driving everywhere. Um, loved having this car. I got attached to it. Would drive my friends home. I would actually ask them for opportunities, like, hey, can I drive you home? You don't have to take the bus. Seriously, come in the Eagle. And so, so driving home, just attach this vehicle. But then the way it always worked for me is when someone wanted to look at a car because there was an ad in the paper, my dad would call me and have me bring it in and give me another one. And so a month in to having this big, goofy car, my dad calls and says, hey, someone wants to look at the Eagle. You got to bring it in. So I bring it into his car lot, and then he gives me the keys for the next vehicle. And as I'm going in, there's like this feeling of disappointment and loss because I've kind of bonded with this thing. Um, We're attached right now. It's my my first car. It gets me where I'm going. I'm going to kind of miss it. And then he throws me the car for the next one and walks me around the corner to show it to me, and it was a Mazda RX-7 convertible, Um, silver, and just a few years old uh, with one of those alarms that talks. And so, like, I would park it in the school parking lot, my friends would smack it to get it to yell at him. And, and he gave me the keys, and it was a day in May, I still remember, nice and warm and sunny, and I sat down, and I was retracting the roof. And when that roof started going back, I forgot all about the eagle. Um, like, the, it, it made the loss of the eagle look like nothing compared to what I'd gained. And when we look at our lives, and we see people that we've lost, we see other losses, we lose finances, we lose health, we, we feel like life is kind of getting away from us. We feel like it's falling apart. The promise of the Bible is that what we'll gain in the resurrection, in this permanent existence with Jesus, in his presence on a permanently resurrected earth, is going to make every loss here look almost insignificant. So we've got to remember that as we do experience those losses. Now when we circle back around to what the, the Sadducees were asking, they were asking, but doesn't the idea of a resurrection look silly in light of marriage. God wants marriage. He wants this marriage to, to go on. He wants this to be the most important institution. So this idea that there's a resurrection, that would totally mess that up because of the, you know, seven brother husbands thing. But Jesus' answer is that marriage won't make the resurrection look silly at all. The resurrection will cause marriage to pale in comparison to the joy that we have there. They were saying marriage and family are ultimate and the resurrection is going to mess all of that up. Jesus says, no, a resurrected state where we're in the presence of Jesus, that's ultimate. And that's going to make the joys of marriage, even the joys of a good marriage, seem small in comparison. And so he says in that resurrected state, there is no more marriage. Marriage is not a thing anymore. Now, we can hear that, and that can sound devastating. In fact, there are, I mean, for example, in Mormonism, they say that the celestial marriages do go on forever and that you will be married for all eternity to that person. But Jesus clearly taught otherwise. He clearly taught that, that marriages end with death. And this is why in our vows we say, till death do us part, that, that you stay together for life, but then at death you do part. And we can hear that when we can say, so you're saying we're going to spend decades together? We are going to be one flesh. We're going to know each other better than anyone could ever know somebody. We're going to be closer than you could ever be. We're going to have all these joys. We're going to have kids. We're going to build this life together. And then when we die, then it's just completely over. Well, the promise of, of all the passages about the resurrection is that there will be nothing that seems like a disappointment when we're resurrected. And even the joy of marriage that we have here is going to look dull in comparison to the new joy that's there. It really is going to be the Jeep Eagle or the AMC Eagle compared to the Mazda RX-7. So two quick applications in the way this should change our marriage. First of all, marriage is a pointer to something bigger than marriage. Marriage exists to paint a picture of something that's an ultimate joy. You know, God gives us this joy that may be the greatest joy that we could have as human beings, being inside a good marriage. But he says even that is just a precursor to the real ultimate joy that's going to absorb that previous joy. There's something bigger and better that we're headed toward. The one thing that was meant to satisfy our hearts, the one joy that all of us need, is not the joy of a good relationship. It's the joy of knowing Jesus Christ. It's not just the joy of knowing another person. Um, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says this. It says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to end. It seems to paint a picture of us having a heart that has this eternal gap in it, where we, we're meant to be satisfied only with what is eternal, only with what lasts absolutely forever. And we spend our lives trying to fill that gap, trying to find the thing that will satisfy us. And fairly often what we think will satisfy us is a, a human romantic relationship And then we get into those relationships and it doesn't do it for us completely or we get into them and it's bad or we can't find those relationships and we're very anxious because of that. But the only thing that our hearts can be satisfied by is an eternal relationship with Jesus. Our hearts were made for the joys of the resurrection. The ultimate joy that'll satisfy us is a relationship with him. And there is no greater joy than that. So the longing deep down underneath all the longings of our heart is a longing for Jesus Christ. And this will really affect our marriage if we think this way. You know, if you expect marriage to be ultimate, if you expect it to satisfy you, if you expect your spouse to meet every need that you have to complete you, to satisfy you on a soul level, you'll be disappointed. And not only that, but you could crush your marriage because no spouse can do that. You've got this eternal gap in your heart that can only be satisfied by Jesus, and you're asking a human being who is not Jesus to satisfy, satisfy that for you? And they can't do it. They won't be able to keep up. They'll feel like they can never be good enough, like they can never meet your expectations, like you'll always be disappointed, and that can completely sicken a marriage. If we look to get our identity, our peace, our joy, our satisfaction just from a human relationship, we're going to be disappointed, and we're probably going to crush that relationship. You know, everybody believes in some kind of heaven. Even atheists believe that there's some state that they can achieve that'll make them happy. And usually it's just some idol that we attach our hearts to. You know, I'll be finally and ultimately happy when I get the right house, get the right car, get the right education, get the right career. And a huge idol within our culture is the idol of romantic love. And we think that that's the one thing that'll satisfy me. You you see it in our movies all the time where there's this angst and there's this lack of satisfaction, but then finally boy meets girl, there's some conflict they overcome, they get married, and from the point that they're married, it's nothing but bliss from then on. Um, now we're satisfied, now we're happy, now life's going to be good because we finally achieved this ultimate state. And in our culture, heaven can be romantic love. Heaven can be this idealized marriage. And if we expect marriage to be heaven for us, we can actually make it hell. We can actually do all kinds of damage with that. According to the Bible, marriage is like an instruction manual for something bigger. Listen to Ephesians 5 31 and 32. It says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. So, marriage was designed to refer to something bigger. It was designed to point to Christ in the church. It was almost like an instruction manual to teach us what the love of Jesus Christ for his church is like until we can actually see him face to face. When I was in high school, we got a big stereo system for Christmas um, for for our family. Do you remember when big stereo systems were a thing? And so, um, and it came with this instruction manual. And uh, even though I'm terrible at stuff like this, I was the best one in my house to try to put this thing together. And so I had to follow the instruction manual and connecting these wires here and these wires here, putting everything together, getting the speakers wired in. And for me, this kind of thing takes hours. For some of you, I know it took, it's a five-minute deal, but um, I'm going through the instruction manual page by page, figuring out how to connect all these different components to get it to work. And then we got a new CD. CDs were new to us. At the time, and I remember putting in Billy Joel. We didn't start the fire; terrible. Um, and and all excited because we got that thing working. But once the stereo system was put together, once it was working, I checked the instruction manual because you don't need that anymore. You don't frame the instructions once the thing that it's instructing you to assemble is complete. Marriage is the instruction manual to teach us a little bit about Jesus' Jesus's relationship with his church. And when Jesus returns, when everything's resurrected and we can see Jesus face-to-face, then that instruction manual is no longer needed. I mean, it's a big deal because it pointed to something so big and so important, but it's not the ultimate deal. You know, the stereo system is not about the instruction manual. The, the instruction manual is about the stereo system. And when the bigger deal comes, when Jesus comes even the joy of marriage is going to get swallowed up in the joy of knowing Jesus. So you say, so what's our relationship going to be like for all eternity? I don't know. Uh, The Bible doesn't say. Um, In some ways, it might even be closer uh, because there won't be sin separating us anymore, but it won't be marriage. That marriage is a, a temporary institution for this life, and then once the resurrection comes, it no longer matters because Jesus is actually the much better model of marriage. And so that's where we're headed. And this should and this is the second application, this should remind us that marriage and romance aren't ultimate or essential. And that should lighten some of the load that's on people who who can't find somebody to marry or who are married and things are really hard and really bad. I know as a church, we try to be pretty family-oriented. We want our families to be strong. We want to see you know, our, our husbands lead, and we want to see our kids follow Jesus, and we want to see our wives godly. We, we want to see family strong, and so we talk a lot about family as a church. But I know that there are a lot of people who are single, um, especially at Grace Road, um, even still. <laughs> when you're there, it's easy to look around at all these other families, look around at your friends who are getting married, and you're you know, always the bridesmaid but never the bride. And it's easy to feel like I am missing something. Like I'm missing the most ultimate thing. I, I'm, the, the one thing that every Christian needs is a family, and I feel like I don't have a family, and so I'm always going to be a second-class Christian. I'll never have joy. Uh, I'll never really be accepted among these people. I'll never have that ultimate thing, and then you go and you watch the movies, and that ultimate thing is always the romance. It's always the marriage, and you feel like you don't have it, and so you're unfulfilled and you're unhappy Listen, the desire you have for a marriage is is probably a good thing and probably a God-given thing. But marriage isn't going to do for you everything that you think it will do for you when you're anxious about not having it. Marriage is a pointer to something bigger. And so if you're in a single season of life, you can be a complete and fulfilled Christian. And, And sure, pursue marriage, but don't pursue it as an idol that you have to have to ever be able to follow Jesus. Pursue it as a secondary pursuit underneath your pursuit of Jesus. If you're in a bad marriage, um, you can look around and you see all these happy couples, and it seems like life is going somewhere for them, and they're planning how they're going to retire together, and they're going on these vacations together, and you go on vacations and they're miserable, or, or you're not having kids, and you're not having all these things that all these other people are having. Well, the reminder of Scripture is that we don't have to have those things to be complete, because those things are great joys But they're joys that point to a greater joy in our relationship with Christ, and so you can be free from being so driven by those things, like they're an idol. Like if we're if if our marriage never gets great, then I'll just be miserable, and my life will never be happy and complete and fulfilled. There is a resurrection coming, that's real. And that's going to last a lot longer than this life. And and so believe that. Believing that can take the edge off some of the drivenness and idolatry and anxiety that can surround marriage when, when you're in a bad one or you're not in one and you want to be in one. Be free from all that and recognize that you're a complete Christian because you have Jesus. I mean, Jesus didn't marry a woman, but he was complete. He was fulfilled. There was nothing lacking in Jesus. Jesus was the ultimate human being, and so don't feel like you're not complete until you get there. Um, marriage is great, but it points to something even greater, and you're going to have that even greater thing. Uh, for now, let's bow our heads and close our eyes, please. Christians, we've got a resurrection coming, and and we should live like that's true. Just as Jesus rose from the dead, his promise is that all those who have trusted in him will rise too. We're really headed there. This isn't just mythology. This isn't just some stories that make us feel better at a funeral. This is the truth. This is the direction that we're headed, and that should radically affect the journey that we're on. That's where our hope is. That's where our ultimate joy is going to be. It's not going to be in the things that this world has to offer us. So ask yourself the question right now, To what degree are you pursuing the things of this world? Are you pursuing them in a balanced way? Or are you pursuing them like you have to have them, like they're your God? Like you've got to have the experiences, you've got to have the house, you've got to have the career, you've got to have the family, and if you don't, you just won't be satisfied because that's not how we're supposed to pursue anything except for Jesus. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, the good news is that Jesus Christ came to save you and forgive you. The truth is all of us have sinned. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, we all deserve his judgment. We all deserve what that revelation passage says when it describes that lake of fire. But the good news is that God loves us and desires to give us a good resurrection. So Jesus came and he absorbed the wrath of his father for us. Even though we had sinned, even though we deserve judgment, Jesus absorbed it all for us. He died on that cross. He was buried and he rose again. So that the Bible says that if we trust in him, we won't perish, but we'll have everlasting life. So if you're here and you recognize that sinfulness and, and that unbelief, then turn from it. Turn from sin. Turn from unbelief and trust in Jesus. Stop trying to trust in religion. Don't trust in your good works to get you connected to God. Don't trust in anything that you can do to be part of that new earth that's coming. Trust only in Jesus and what Jesus did to forgive you, to get you there, and to bring you into his presence. And the promise is that if we'll just believe in him in simple faith, if we'll turn from sin, if we'll turn from unbelief, and we'll trust in Jesus Christ, our sins will be forgiven. He'll wash them away with his blood. That's good news for us. And during these next couple songs we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper and, and this is designed to be another reminder of the good news that Jesus' body was torn for us his blood was shed for us and just like Jesus was resurrected we'll be resurrected again too as we take this Lord's Supper it's important to realize that taking the supper does not make you a Christian but you should be a Christian to take it not a perfect Christian um, none of us are not someone who never has doubt or never has sin. In fact, this supper is a reminder that even though we doubt and even though we sin, what makes us right with God is that Jesus' body was torn and his blood was spilled. When we take this supper, we should take it soberly, we should take it seriously. So I'd encourage you during these songs to confess sin to God. If there's something that's broken between you and somebody else that that can be fixed, go and, and, and fix it. And as you've confessed sin and reminded yourself of the death, burial, and resurrection for Jesus, of Jesus for you, you can come and take the supper at any time. There are two tables in the front, one in the back, and one in the balcony. And you can take the bread and eat it, reminding yourself of Jesus' body that was shed. And you can either dip that in the large cup uh, to remind yourself of the blood of Jesus that was, was shed or, or drink from one of the small cups. But make sure that as you do this, you remember that we're showing the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection. We're reminding ourselves of the great truth that that what's ultimate for us is a relationship with God. And Jesus has given us what's ultimate through his death, burial, and resurrection. So anytime during these next couple songs, you can come and take the Lord's Supper. Uh, Father, we just thank you for your word. Thank you for where we're headed. Thank you that there's a resurrection coming, Lord. Uh, We get so focused on just this life and getting all that we can out of it. Uh, So Lord, forgive us and help us to see again the joy that we have in you. Help us to recognize that there's nothing that we lack when we have Jesus. Uh, So Lord, as we take this supper, glorify your name in our hearts. Help us as we sing these songs to worship you as our great Savior. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.